I don't think I'll ever forget the way Sonny's face dropped when he looked just above my head. So he grabbed me and put his hands over my mouth and nose, shook me and aggressively warned me that if I continued to cry and scare the other kids, that he would make my situation a lot worse. Sean and his girl are wide awake, lights on, looking totally freaked out. The screen is sliced and flopping in the wind. Headphones recommended. Listener discretion advised. Welcome back in, everyone. I'm your host, Chad. You're just moments away from true tales of terror that will leave you breathless. So brace yourself. This is Disturbed. to Shudder for supporting this episode of Disturbed. Shudder is the streaming service with the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series, and originals. I'm talking from Hollywood favorites and cult classics to original series and critically acclaimed new genre films. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code DISTURBED. Here we are, folks midway through February and experiencing sub-zero temperatures. So in that spirit, I've got some truly bone-chilling stories to match. In our first experience brought to us by Reddit user Enormous Radio, we discover that maybe that fear of the dentist is for good reason. Performing this experience is Nicole Goodnight. When I was about six years old, around 2004, my mom started taking my sister and I to Dr. Daniel's pediatric dental office. The dental center was located inside a giant yellow mansion that also doubled as Dr. Daniel's house. It was honestly gorgeous. When I first started going to the dentist, I was extremely shy and actually suffered from selective mutism and had a lot of autistic-like tendencies. Needless to say, I relied heavily on my mother's comfort and for someone to give me a voice because it was Extremely anxiety-inducing for me to talk to strangers, especially men, for some reason. When my sister and I got called into the waiting room, my mom followed us to the office until she was told by Dr. Daniels that parents weren't allowed to be with their children as it taught kids independence, to which my mom complied to. Once in there, he immediately separated my sister and I, and in reaction to that, I cried because I felt so scared. Dr. Daniels did not like crying, So he grabbed me and put his hands over my mouth and nose, shook me, and aggressively warned me that if I continued to cry and scare the other kids, that he would make my situation a lot worse. Obviously, this scared me even more, so I started to cry again. Dr. Daniels had enough and took me into his house part of the dentist office where he screamed at me again, grabbed me by the neck, and shoved me. His hygienist Judy came over and told me if I continued to cry, she would spank me so hard I wouldn't know what had hit me. Afterwards, he gave me a juice concoction and left me alone in his house for about five minutes until he took me back into the dental office and did work on my teeth. 
I guess I just instinctively knew that if I wanted to survive, I just had to act like I was not terrified and hold on to the tears. All I wanted was my mommy. After the first appointment, my sister and I told my mom that we were scared of the dentist and that he was a mean man, but she just took it as me being an anxious child, so we continued to see him. Each visit was just as terrifying. Every time we pulled into the mansion, my heart just melted away inside my chest. I was so scared. It was no longer pretty to look at. Every time we went to the dentist, Dr. Daniels, or the Tooth Man as he called himself, always had us have heavy dental work procedures done. We had seals done on several baby teeth and plenty of teeth removed, some with his fingers with no regard to pain level at all. And often, when having a tooth removal or seals done, your mouth had to be open with a retractor. He would leave us there with the retractor on for about 45 minutes or so before he even came to work on our teeth. Sometimes he would eat his lunch while we sat there with our mouth open. Probably one of the worst pains I've ever felt in my life. I remember one time when I was about in third grade, I had been leaned down in the chair waiting with the retractor on for an hour. I was in so much pain I couldn't take it. I sat up on the chair and tried to scream and cry as loud as I could. Dr. Daniels came rushing over, angry as could be, took my retractors off and then took me back into his house part again where he screamed at me for being a big baby and scaring all the other kids. I was so sad in myself because I hadn't cried in so long. He then took me back to the dental chair and then pinned me down to the seat in a straitjacket. He put my retractors back on and said that I would have to wait longer because I caused such a scene. All I could do was shed silent tears and drool everywhere and I couldn't even wipe it because he locked up my arms. Afterwards, my mouth would become so swollen and filled with rashes. It hurt to talk for days. It would leave bruises and swells as soon as I left his chair. He would often tell my mother I was a difficult patient if I so much as winced at his torture. Once he removed six of my teeth at once and I could barely eat. While he ripped out my teeth, he would often sing songs. It was so Sweeney Todd-like. When I was in seventh grade, I started getting some new braces and we started seeing an orthodontist. Not long after that, we stopped seeing Dr. Dan and I started seeing a new dentist who was actually nice. I had never known that getting your teeth cleaned didn't have to feel like going through a saw trap. I think my mom took us out of Dr. Dan's practice when the orthodontist looked at our dental records and saw a lot of unnecessary procedures being done on our mouths. Not long ago, I was having a conversation with my friend about our childhood fears and instantly my mind went to the tooth man. Curious, I googled him to see what had happened to him and to my happiness, the practice was shut down. Also left under his name was a Yelp page that was still left up. The page was filled with numerous one-star reviews from former patients that were once abused as kids in his office, using the page as an outlet to express their trauma. I started to cry because their experiences were so close and some identical to what I went through when I was a kid. It was so sad, but at the same time really validating to know that I was not alone. A lot of the procedures we went through were just a scam for him to collect money off of our parents' insurance. Now that I think about it, he probably was so adamant on us not crying and screaming for help because he didn't want parents to hear and come see what was going on. I shake thinking about this. I really pray that he hasn't opened up another practice somewhere else. I know it's hard not to blame parents in this situation, but the truth is this man was a swift abuser. For every bruise and swell we had, he would have dental explanations that would make the parents feel stupid for asking. He was an authority figure, I don't blame my mom for not believing us. She knew he was firm, but 
probably thought we were confusing firmness with meanness. To be honest, even writing this torture was so wild it, it actually sounds made up. She did eventually come around. She's not alone as there were hundreds and hundreds of parents that were duped and deceived by him. To Dr. Dan, please never let us meet again. And to any parent reading this, if you're ever told to not go in with your child to an appointment, something's really not right. Next up, we learn from Reddit user Frodo Frog why you should always look up when letting the dog out. Performing this experience is Matt Bradford. So let me get a few things straight. Our little village was the kind of place where everyone knows everyone, and I could count the amount of houses on two hands. We were a really quiet and close-knit community, and nothing ever happened there. Proper out-in-the-stick stuff. Now, one night a few years ago, my mom and my stepdad had gone out to this concert and left me in charge of my little brother and the dog. I wasn't very old, about 14, and I felt really proud that my parents trusted me enough to do that. I thought I was a pretty cool big brother, and I thought we'd be doing cool babysitter stuff like staying up late, eating pizza, etc. I'm kind of glad we did, because I don't know what would have happened if we didn't. At about 10.30, the power cut out. I didn't think anything of it because the weather hadn't been great lately and I figured that had something to do with it. I got some candles out of the cupboard and lit them and put some of our favorite songs on. As soon as I sat back down, Sonny, my little brother, turned to me and, being the weird little kid that he was, told me very calmly that someone was outside. I was a little perturbed by him. The dog hadn't done anything, so I presumed it was just the neighbors or something. He just shrugged and went back to his drawings. There's a running joke in our house that you don't need a clock with the dog around, because he is such a creature of habit that he will consistently get up at exactly the same time every night to tell you that it's time to initiate his nightly go-to-bed protocol. It was about three quarters of an hour after the power went out when my dog decided that now was the time. I told Sonny to get the dog his biscuit while I let him out for a piss. Now, our kitchen is an extension to the original house, and as such has a flat roof that's low to the ground compared to the rest of the house, and offers easy access to the bathroom window. So as I open the door so the dog could do his thing, Sonny pushes past me in the doorway and whispers, I know you're out there, and I'm calling the police. As he turned around, with the biggest, proudest smile you have ever seen on his face, there was a very distinct rustling coming from just above the doorway. I don't think I'll ever forget the way Sonny's face dropped when he looked just above my head. I looked up. The man, sitting on the roof above me, panicked, tried to kick me, and then ran off into next door's garden, and presumably into the cornfield surrounding our village. I was scared shitless and Sonny was bawling his eyes out. I ushered him inside as quickly as I could and got a knife from the kitchen. We both went to his room, and I told him to try to get some sleep while I waited for our parents to come back. It was an agonizingly long four hours before they did. My stepdad immediately went outside to check to see if everything was alright. 
I heard them talking about how something had smashed the fuse box. Obviously, we called the police, but they didn't come until later that day. They did a search of the immediate premises and found a makeshift bed in a nearby disused barn, along with pictures of silhouettes of us in the shower through the frosted glass. I think it's pretty safe to say the whole experience definitely shook us up. We moved out as soon as we could, but I still shut curtains whenever I can, and I see shadows underneath every door I see. Sonny keeps quiet about it, but I'm not sure if that's just because his brain has cut it out or what. So, yeah, weird kitchen roof stalker. Let's not meet. I know you guys are big horror fans just like me, so you absolutely need to check out Shudder. It's the streaming service with the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series, and originals that you won't be able to find anywhere else. You'll have unlimited access to stream their unique collection on all your favorite devices, like your iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, Android devices, and more. You'll find new supernatural terrors, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, and shocking horrors added every single week, all for $5.99 per month. I promise you can't get horror content like this anywhere else. Now for me, I love how the entire collection is curated and organized, which makes finding your favorite movies super fast and easy. I jumped on the Shutter app and I had my first movie, Hunted, playing literally in seconds. They have a huge selection and range of different genres that you'll always find the perfect, terrifying movie to curl up to. And here's the best part. You can try Shudder free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com and use promo code DISTURBED. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com with promo code DISTURBED to try 30 days free. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something is creeping Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. That was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing 
that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Now back to the show. And finally, Reddit user Paradoxical Mind shows us why you should always lock your car doors. Performing this experience is Nicole Doolin. This is a long one, but was so bizarre I think it's worth telling. I wanted to post it because this person recently tried to friend my now husband on Facebook, and it brought back crazy memories and I need to vent it out. I got married right at 18. I was a pretty book-smart kid, but lacked street smarts. By the time I turned 20, my now ex-husband and I had moved into a rental property in a pretty nice suburb outside Chicago. In the basement of the house was a big mother-in-law suite where a good male friend of ours, Nick, lived as well. I was about halfway through nursing school at this time. This particular semester of nursing school, I had a very early clinical rotation once a week. I was 21 at the time. I am not a morning person, so in order to maximize the amount of time I spent asleep, I started loading all my stuff into my car the night before. Bags, books, and even my purse... Again, street smarts lacking. One particular night before clinicals, I asked my ex-husband Bobby to get a book from my car. Bob does, but forgets to lock the door. The next morning when I got to my car, I note that my purse is gone. I ended up filing a police report. I was most concerned because I had just gotten this new job as nurse's aide at a hospital, and I had my social security card still sitting in my wallet. Strike three for street smarts. Almost immediately after the theft, strange things start to happen. We started getting ding-dong ditches all hours of the day and night. Someone vandalized mine, Nick's, and Bob's cars with strange graffiti. Nazi swastikas, hangmen, etc. Egged our house. Slashed Nick's tires. We first chalked it up to neighborhood pranksters. But when we started having damages that cost some decent money, we called the police. Not to mention, one day when Bob was mowing the lawn, he noticed piles of cigarette butts outside the bedroom window. The police came out, pretty much did nothing but take a report, and told us to perhaps invest in car alarms and some brighter floodlights for the driveway. A few weeks after this, at 2.30 in the morning, I get a call on my cell. It was the police in a neighboring town. They had picked up someone who had my ID on him. Someone named Craig J. When they asked why he had someone else's ID on him, he claimed I was his girlfriend. The cop called me because my name had popped that I'd filed a police report for theft. I assured the cops I'd never heard of him before and was told that I could pick up my ID at the police station within the next few days. Things really started to escalate at this point, but I still didn't make the connection that perhaps these incidents were related. 
I started getting strange messages on MySpace. <laughs> this was 2009. As well as on Facebook. From clearly fake accounts with long-winded messages that made no sense. This person started messaging friends of mine as well. I deleted MySpace and blocked the person on Facebook. But new accounts kept getting created. Somehow this person got my email address and started sending emails as well. I had no idea who this person could be, but they seemed to know details about me that indicated that this was either someone I knew or knew someone I knew. The messages weren't overtly threatening, but creepy enough to where I started becoming uncomfortable. One night, my friend Lauren and I were sitting on the couch watching TV. Bob, Lauren's husband, and a few other friends had gone out for the night. As we're sitting around chilling, we hear something that sounds like someone shaking the garage door. It was an attached garage. I go and check the garage. Nothing seems out of the ordinary. We had occasional issues with raccoons, so I chalked it up to that. But the noise keeps continuing. Lauren and I are getting freaked out at this point. Now, understand the layout of the house. It was a modern-style ranch house with no upstairs. The garage sounds moved now to the kitchen window. A distinct sound of someone knocking or scratching hard on the windows. We call our husbands, who did not answer. At this point, we debate calling the police. What if it's an animal? Or tree branches? We don't want to seem stupid. As we debate, I see Lauren's face go sheet white and look past me. I spin around, and I can see the... Locked, fortunately, handle to the front door wiggling. We were seated near the kitchen. We jump up. Lauren grabs a knife from the butcher block on the counter. I grab a small hammer from the junk drawer. We book it to the back of the house where the bedrooms are, cell phone in hand, and lock ourselves in one of the bedrooms and call the police. The dispatcher tells us to stay on the line, move furniture in front of the door if possible, and the police are on the way. We shove a dresser in front of the door, knife and hammer in hand, we agreed if this fucker was going to come in, he might be bigger or stronger than us, but he's not going down without a fight. We plan. If he gets in before the cops, I go for the head with the hammer. She goes for the gut with the knife. Cops show up, banging on the front door, shouting, Police! We can see the red and blue lights through the window. We leave the room, let the cops in. They find no signs of anyone present or evidence of an attempted break-in. They take a report. In the meanwhile, our husbands finally call us back. They come home and the cops leave. Flash forward a few months. A very close friend of ours, Sean, was renovating his apartment and needed a place to crash along with his girlfriend. Bob and I decided he could stay in the third bedroom in our house. The first night Sean stays with us, we are awakened at two in the morning by Sean screaming at someone. Bob and I jump out of bed and rush into the hall and to Sean's room. Sean and his girl are wide awake, lights on, looking totally freaked out. The screen is sliced and flopping in the wind. 
Sean told us he woke up to someone using what he thought was a knife on the screen and started climbing in through the window. We call the cops. They come out and take a statement. Sean describes the guy as best he could. A white male, young-looking, semi-shaved head with what looked like darker hair. Cops dust for fingerprints. Comes back as a match for... Craig J. Turns out, I knew who he was. Vaguely. He was a year younger than me, and we had gone to the same high school. But I couldn't remember having any significant interactions with him. He lived with his parents only a few blocks from my parents' house. I ended up reaching out to high school acquaintances who knew him, and they remembered him as a nice but odd kid, kind of quiet but definitely on the strange side, who had dropped out of school before graduation. Upon realizing that Sean had just moved in, the cop makes a statement that chilled us all. He probably didn't realize anyone was staying in this bedroom and thought the room would be empty. Cops go there, arrest him. He suddenly has quite the story for them. He and I were secret lovers. I was ignoring him. We had a relationship. He also had been allowed into my home many times. I implored. He gets charged with something like trespassing or breaking and entering and does light time for it, maybe a month and has to pay a fine. In the meanwhile, I get a restraining order on him. He gets out, and I hear nothing from him. I also develop a completely irrational fear of first-floor windows. Around Christmas of 2010, I am now 23. I figure the whole Craig thing is in the past. Bob and I decide to divorce, unrelated to this, and go our separate ways. And Nick has long since moved out. We end the lease. I move to a less desirable suburb, but with affordable rent. I settle on an apartment in a four-unit building that had a locked entrance. And the only way in was with a key or with someone opening the door from the inside. I lived on the second floor. By this time, I had graduated and was now a nurse. And was working now at a nursing home. Spring or summer 2011, it started up again, with calls coming through to me at work, only to have someone hang up. Letters suddenly appeared in the staff-only mailbox, mailed to me with no return address. The strange emails started up again from random accounts. The messages were never overtly threatening, but they were long, way too frequent, way too out there. He spoke to me as if we were long-lost friends and had some sort of connection. I don't think he ever threatened to hurt me, although the cutting into the house with a knife? I don't know what was going through his mind. What I kind of seemed to piece together over the years from all his rambling is that he had some sort of crush on me when I was younger, although I never remember even speaking to him during high school. And him happening to rob my car was some sort of sign from the universe or something that we were meant to be together. I call the cops. They basically tell me that because there have been no threats, and other than an OOP or a cease and desist, 
There's not much they can do except watch and wait. This goes on for a while, and finally one night I wake up at two in the morning to the doorbell ringing. I'm instantly in a panic. I look out the window. There, illuminated in the floodlight, is Craig. I burst out crying. In my half-awake state, I run across the hall and start banging on my neighbor's door. He was an older divorced guy who lived alone. He goes downstairs, confronts Craig, and tells him the cops have been called. And I actually call the cops. He takes off. I file a report. They claim they will talk to him, but this only makes things worse. Friends I have on Facebook now start getting random messages from Craig, asking about me, telling them he has important information for me. Other times he alternates saying that I owe him money and I have a debt I need to pay off. My friends block him as he goes along. Meanwhile, my younger sister is living in the city with a few friends. He somehow finds out where and drives to her apartment and confronts her while she has people over. She freaks out. They kick him out. She calls the cops, who basically again state that he didn't commit a crime but offer her a restraining order. Right after this, another incident. My younger cousin is a high school senior on the cross-country team. He shows up at my cousin's practice. Cousin has no clue who he is. He starts demanding information on me. Coach gets involved. Craig gets in a fight with the coach. The cops are called. He's banned from high school grounds, but nothing more. He calls the nursing home administrator at my job, asking him to talk to me and that he has important information to tell me. The administrator, my work was now aware of the situation, tells him not to come onto the property or he will have him arrested for trespassing. At this point, I'm paranoid beyond measure. Then, just as quickly as it started, it faded off. It's now summer of 2012 and the final capper in this saga. I'm almost 25 now. A friend of mine named Stacy, and incidentally Sean's ex, moved in with me temporarily while she looked for a place. She was dating a new guy and spent quite a few nights at his place. One day I picked up a double shift starting at 7 a.m. and ending at 11.30 p.m. Stacy texts me around 3.30 p.m. stating she won't be home that night and was going out with her guy. I arrive home at almost midnight. First thing I notice is that the door is unlocked. Uneasy, but thinking perhaps Stacy had just forgotten to lock it, I cautiously peer inside. I pan my gaze to the kitchen and living room. I can't shake the feeling that I'm unsettled. Something wasn't sitting right. Due to all of these incidents, I always made sure that one or two lights were on, even when we weren't home. I was still not even fully in the door when I noticed that I was staring into a pitch-black apartment and immediately my brain went into full panic. And I'm glad it did, realistically. Stacy could have forgotten to leave a light on. But my instincts were in overdrive and sounding off five-alarm fire alarm bells. My Puerto Rican neighbor who lived in one of the building units was known for his weekend parties, 
and I could hear a party going on downstairs. I book it down the stairs and burst into the party, and I tell him what happened. He looks at me like I'm crazy, but agrees to come upstairs with me. We get inside. He looks around. We see nobody. I'm starting to wonder if I'm just nuts. Maybe Stacy had her boyfriend over and they left in a hurry, forgetting to turn on the low lights and lock the door. He agrees with me and sort of jokingly pulls open the pantry door. What I saw next will never, ever leave my mind. There, crouched inside, is Craig. Puerto Rican neighbor puts the guy in a chokehold. I call the police. To this day, I have no idea what he planned on doing. Cops come out and he's arrested. Because my neighbor was having a party, he had the door open to the alleyway. Chances are he just walked into the building and, if anyone even noticed, people would just assume he was there for the party or whatever. It's more confusing how he got into the apartment itself. My theory is, my roommate at the time was from the country. While I lived in a suburb, it was the type of suburb right on the edge of a major U.S. city. So we always locked our doors and generally kept everything secured as a rule. She was used to leaving her doors unlocked and wide open. And I think honestly it may have just slipped her mind when she went out the door for the night. I confronted her about it and she of course denied it. But that's really the only logical way he could have gotten in. I always locked both the knob lock and the deadbolt whenever I left the house. Unless he was a skilled locksmith... I have no idea how he could have gotten in. I didn't stay alone or go anywhere by myself for a long time after that. I feel that I actually developed a paranoia because of all of this and was highly suspicious of giving my number or any information out to anyone. He ended up being charged and convicted of aggravated stalking, breaking and entering, and some other charges. I did meet his parents in court, who were both shockingly very normal, apologetic people. They tried explaining their son. They claimed he was mentally ill and suffered from bipolar disorder. When he's medicated, he's okay. When he's off his meds, he's nuts. After he served time, I did not hear from him for years, until 2016 when he found me on Facebook. I was much older now, around 29. I replied to him very firmly that any contact would end in the police being called and that I had no interest in him at all. I blocked him in any way I could. Recently, he found my new husband on Facebook and friended him. He blocked him as well. To this day, I still have a paranoia. I had parked my car near a baseball diamond once and some kids most likely hit a baseball into my windshield and took off because I had a perfectly baseball-sized spider crack on the glass. Despite it being completely logical that it most likely was a ball, I instantly reverted to, Oh God, is he back? I had no idea what happened to him. I also am now a total psycho about keeping things locked. Twice my life got screwed up because doors weren't locked. My car door, and most likely my apartment door. I have an acquaintance monitor him on Facebook. His page is not private. And from what I have seen, 
He appears to go through periods where he is pretty inactive, and then episodes where he is rambling, overposting, oversharing, and acting generally deranged. I believe his parents were telling the truth when they stated when he's medicated, he is okay. Part of me feels bad for him. I'm older now, and I've been a nurse now for almost 10 years, some of which time was spent in a psych specialty. The mind is a hell of a thing. Looking back, though, those were some of the worst years of my adult life. He put me through a lot of anxiety and caused a lot of issues for me. I slept with my couch pushed against my apartment door for the next two years before I moved out of there. I'm now married, but on the nights where I am home alone, I still find myself resisting the urge to stack furniture in front of the doors. One of the other fallouts from this situation, Craig either sold, lost, or gave away my social security card that had been in my purse. Someone tried to file for Medicaid benefits in Arizona using my name and social, as well as obtained a job using my social and failed to pay any taxes, leaving me with a surprise asset freeze by the IRS and a whole financial mess that needed to be untangled before they unfroze my accounts and paid me back the money they started to pull out of my paychecks for the back taxes I had nothing to do with. My credit got extremely messed up for years because of it, and to this day, I have a lock on my social security number and monitor my accounts like a hawk. Moral of the story? Never leave your purse in the car. Always lock your doors. Before we sign off on this episode, let's take a quick listener voicemail off the horror hotline, 701-354-3667. Hey Chad, this is Rudra from India and I have been listening to your podcast for the last three years. It's amazing, it brings down chills by my spine the moment you say true tales of horror. I love the show very much and I hope it continues forever. It always surprises me to hear how we really do have listeners from all around the world. Thanks for the message. You can support the show and become part of the podcast and get access to bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and much more. Visit disturbedpodcast.com support to get your access today. Disturbed is a Disturbed Media original podcast. Musical score by White Bat Audio, co.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.